So, we've been looking at the book of Revelation together um, over the last few weeks. It's a book that's typically shrouded in a lot of mystery and misinterpretation. Uh, And yet, the message of Revelation is very simple indeed. It is God revealing himself as the victor over death and the victor over sin. And that through his son Jesus, we all have an eternal hope that one day we will be seated with him on the throne. I'm done. Goodbye. That is the message of Revelation. You could say that the book is the revelation of our hope in Jesus. Jesus himself declared on the cross, it is finished. And he's not talking simply about the crucifixion. He's talking about what we see him proclaiming here in the book of Revelation, that it is finished. Heaven has triumphed over hell. Death is no more. Paul writes, O death, where is your sting? And that, in a nutshell, is the book of Revelation. It is the revealed hope that we find in Jesus. And so if you've heard other things, perhaps things that confuse you or leave you a little bit afraid, then I'm here to tell you that you can rejoice because this is a book of hope. This book talks about our past, it talks about our present, and our future. And it's this part, the bit about our future, uh, that really, as mankind, we're obsessed with. And that's where we can come to find some really extreme interpretations of the text and some obsessive behaviours. But typically, people respond in one of four ways. They either ignore it, they're obsessed with it, they're afraid with it, or they engage with it. And I want to encourage you that this is a book to engage with in careful, prayerful study. This is a book to declare, to speak out loud. loud. It even says itself that blessing will come on those that read it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So this book is prophecy. It says that. And so we must treat it as so, without getting too hung up on the heavy symbolism that's used in the apocalyptic form of literature. But we must also be careful to interpret Scripture with Scripture, And you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? It means that we need to consider the overall Bible story, the framework, if you like, that God has laid out for us before we tackle specific verses. So the book of Revelation is prophecy, but the book of Revelation is also a pastoral book. It is concerned with the condition of our hearts and the state of our Christian living. So remember that. It's encouragement, it's hope, it's prophetic, but it's also pastoral. And so our exploration of the book of Revelation in this series is specifically the seven letters that are written to the seven churches in Asia. That's modern-day Turkey to you and I, and I feel obliged to mention Akin, because everyone else has. Akin is from Turkey. This is his homeland that we're talking about. And the letter that we're looking at today is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And this can be found in chapter 3, verse 7, if you want to turn there uh, with me. 
And what we know about the church in Philadelphia, or more specifically what I know about the church in Philadelphia, is not a huge amount. The city itself, Philadelphia, was founded in the second century by King Pergamum. And the city was strategically situated in a fertile river valley on the main road from Sardis to Laodicea. And it's thought that its location made the church like a sort of missionary city for spreading the gospel to the east. So that's Philadelphia. Uh, Let's read the passage together. Join with me in Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for the truth that you teach us and for the hope that we find in you, Lord Jesus. Please come upon us now. Send us your Holy Spirit. Please open our our eyes and our ears to hear and understand, Lord Jesus, what you are revealing to us this morning. We pray. Amen. So, what a beautiful piece of scripture. What an incredible exhortation to the church in Philadelphia. Jubilee. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, says the Lord. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Well done. Well done. Be encouraged, Jubilee. This is good news. The keen ones of you will have noticed that unlike the other churches, there doesn't seem to be a particular grievance that God is highlighting with the church in Philadelphia. And you're right, no one's being told off. And so it's with such joy that I share this passage with you as encouragement, as exhortation, as a reminder of who God is and who he says we are. And there are three points I'd like to make from this passage this morning. The first is an open door. The second is to endure patiently. And the third is a new name. My first point, an open door. So the first part of this letter talks about someone who is holy and true, which in itself is pretty amazing. 
But this someone, who's Jesus, just in case you weren't following along, this someone holds the key of David. Why is that so significant, I wonder? Well, keys are really pretty important. Depending on what the key opens determines just how important that key is. Some keys might unlock your bike lock, for example. It's pretty handy, a pretty useful key to have. Some keys might unlock your car or your house. Well, that's even more important. In fact, you come to understand just important how important that key is when it's not there to do the unlocking for you. And a few weeks ago, uh, we've had quite a lot of snow where we live. The padlock to our garage froze shut. And I didn't realize it was frozen until I put the key in and I'd started to turn. And I thought, oh, it's a little bit tough this morning. I'll turn a bit harder. And as I turned a bit harder, I ripped the handle of the key off, leaving the key part in the lock. I hadn't unlocked the padlock. And this, as you can probably imagine, was really quite frustrating, particularly as my tools that could have solved this problem were in the garage. But my drums were in there too, and I needed them for church. Anyway, in the end, I ended up having to borrow an angle grinder from the farmer and chop off the padlock. Such was the frustration of having a key that didn't work. And hopefully, that gives us a little bit of an idea and a picture of just how valuable keys can be. But imagine that keys are even more important than the key to our house or car. Imagine for a moment that it's one of those really uh, exciting keys that you see in the movies where there's two of them and they both have to be turned at the same time and a nuclear missile is going to go off. Um, I think that's really cool, really exciting. I'd like to give it a a go one day, probably without the missile, But, you know, just to stand there and be like, three, two, one, turn the key, go! But how about it's the keys to the Tower of London, where supposedly all of the Queen's jewels are kept, all of her crowns, every precious thing that she has, everything that represents her wealth and her power, supposedly is in the Tower of London. And suddenly, if we think about the key to the Tower of London, We're talking about a whole different type of key all of a sudden, aren't we? We're talking about a key that gives the bearer an incredible amount of power and authority. And that is the kind of key that's being referred to in this letter to Philadelphia. It's the key of David. And this passage is in fact a direct quote from Isaiah 22 where Jesus is referencing um, a prophecy for Eliakim. This is, uh, this is the son of Hel- Hilkiah, um, who was uh, appointed to become the palace administrator for David's descendant, Hezekiah. And in this role, Eliakim is given the key to all of the palace's treasure rooms. That's what's referred to as the key of David. It's the key to his treasure rooms. And later on in Scripture, in Isaiah 39, we get to hear just some of the incredible things that are kept in these palace treasure rooms. He showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. 
This literal storehouse and literal key represented the riches and power of the entire kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel, God's kingdom. And the implication here in this letter is that this earthly kingdom, with all its power, glory and authority, has now been superseded by a heavenly kingdom. And the one that is speaking, who holds this key, has all the authority and power of the whole kingdom of heaven. And it's this person, Jesus, with this key, that declares that what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is establishing his great sovereignty and authority here. That's what he's saying to us. There is nothing, no one in all heaven and earth that can shut the door which he has opened or can open the door that he has shut. How encouraging is that? He holds the key to the whole kingdom and he is declaring over his church, Jubilee, that he has placed before us an open door that no one can shut. God's will has been made known. It will be carried out. We may not see it in its fullness in our lifetime, but we will come to see the eternal providence of God's open door for his church. Be encouraged, Jubilee. God knows the times that we have little strength. It says that in this letter. He knows all the times that we've prayed for the lost, all the times when we have prayed for a building, all the times when we have prayed for breakthrough. I know your struggles, says God. But behold, you have kept my word and not denied my name. Hallelujah. What an encouragement this letter is. Take heart, Jubilee. Be faithful, for God is the one opening and closing doors for us here in Teesside. But the door that really matters, the door to our eternal salvation, has been flung wide open. Why is it so important that Jesus outlines this here, at this time, to this church? Well, you see, the Bible story is of a people who rejected God. That's what we see when we read from Genesis through to Revelation. A people who took it upon themselves to take the place of God in their lives and they replaced him with idols. And sometimes those idols were themselves, sometimes they were other things, but basically they were anything that they put in the place of God. Effectively, with Adam and Eve's sin, they shut the door on God and mankind has been following suit ever since closing that door that God has opened. And what we see here in the book of Revelation is the final restoration act of Jesus to take our place, to take our sin for us and to make us righteous. And now that he, Jesus, has stood in our place and taken our sin, he has the authority and the power to open what our sin had closed. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Saviour of the world, opens the door to the kingdom of God and has revealed to us our internal inheritance with all the riches and glory that we get to enjoy, enjoy for eternity. That is our hope. That is our future. 
and beyond the troubles and strife that we may experience, beyond the concern of who will be the next US president, beyond the suffering, persecution and pain around the world, beyond all of that is our present hope today in our future glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. That we will be risen again in a new body, in a new heaven and a new earth, restored in glory for eternity with God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you understand the significance of this? We have a certain hope of an eternal future with God in heaven. And let's take a moment to back up. I can't help but notice the parallel here between the open door that Jesus has provided for us, the opportunity he has made open, and the door that Simon spoke about last week, where Jesus asks us to open the door to him. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You see, guys, mankind has tried to do it by ourselves without God. And we can see how well that has turned out, can't we? And perhaps you're here today and you're thinking, gosh, I wonder what hope I have for eternity. I haven't met this Jesus. Is the door open to me too? Well, Jesus answered that question for us in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through the Father. Jesus is knocking. He's knocking on the door of your life. Will you let him in? Will you allow him to lead you towards his door that he has opened wide for his church? As the church, will we let him in? This isn't just for unbelievers. This is for all of us. We need God. We can't do it without him. And this letter is simply more, is more than simply a prophetic statement of all the things that we hope for, like buildings, like blessing. This is a prophetic statement of the complete restoration for mankind that God promises to us. And this letter is pastoral. Because what could be more encouraging, what could point us more to Jesus than the reality of our eschatological hope that our eternal future in God's complete kingdom is ours? Just as he always planned for it to be, the key holder of the kingdom of of heaven, the kingdom of God, the creator of mankind, he invites us to come through the open door of his kingdom into perfect relationship with him. A relationship that will last for eternity. A relationship that, in fact, he always intended for us to have. And yet, through our own rejection of him, he's not been available to us except through his son, Jesus. The door is open. No one can close it. But no one can force you through it either. 
Jesus is inviting you to the Father, and no one comes to him except through Jesus. We saw that. That was his words. So if you don't know him this morning, this is as good a time as any for you to meet God the Father who created the universe. Don't miss this opportunity. Speak to a friend. Speak to the person who brought you. Come and find me or Raj or Sarush. But don't miss this opportunity today because Jesus is standing at the door knocking and he's asking, will you let him in? And so this is how our passage begins, with this tremendous hope and encouragement. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What's next, you might ask? What does this mean for us today? Well, my second point is to endure patiently. Jesus exhorts the church in Philadelphia to endure patiently. Picking up in verse 9, he says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Endure patiently. What's being said here is, to, is it's talking about the authenticity of the church and it's warning to look out for hypocrites. What matters most to Jesus is what's in our hearts. Does our lifestyle authentically reflect a heart that is devoted to God? The church is encouraged to endure patiently whilst holding on to what they have. It's not simply good enough to do the right things or to say the right things. What matters to Jesus is the condition of our hearts. You could say that this is about authentic Christian living. Scripture calls for us to be countercultural. And what does that mean? It means we must not conform to the ways of this world. We must not be seduced by today's riches because the, t- the door has been opened for us for tomorrow's inheritance, which makes today's pleasures look like a cheap replica in comparison to what God promises. So endure patiently, guys. Guys, Cling on to righteousness. Jesus knows the times when you have little strength. It says so right here in the passage. He knows what it's like to face temptations. He knows what it's like to endure suffering and hardship. He knows what it's like to deal with earthly frustrations. And yet, he says to us, keep his word. Be faithful to his name, because there is a reward that far exceeds any earthly satisfaction. Don't miss this one. Don't miss it, because it's really important. God is speaking about our hearts. He's speaking to our hearts. Don't fill them with what looks enticing, what looks right here, what's immediate, what's available right now. Because compared to what he's promising, all of those things are worthless. 
all of those things will distract you from what he's offering. And you might well say, well, how dare you tell me that there is something more satisfying than my own pleasure and experiences? That's a pretty outrageous claim, Matthew. How dare you say that? Well, do you know what? I'm not telling you. Jesus is telling you. He calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He calls us a new creation. That's not simply just a pet name. It's a reality. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we are now a new creation. There is a journey laid out before us that we must prepare for. We heard yesterday about how we have received God's favour for us by being his children. And yet, we have the opportunity to grow and increase in the favour that he has for us. That's quite incredible, isn't it? There is an opportunity laid before us, guys, where God is calling us into his purposes and his plans, and he's saying, will you pick up my cross and walk? Will you go where I'm calling you to go? Will you grow in the favour that I have for you? Because, you know, there is a message that the world needs to hear that we have been called to deliver. Will we endure patiently with the door of our hearts open to Jesus, pressing on daily towards the prize with the encouragement that he opens and closes the doors before us and the hope that he has opened the door of the kingdom to welcome us in forever. This is important stuff. We can't afford to ignore this, guys. Jesus has already done it. The door is already open. And yet he says we have been made righteous. And the invitation for our hearts and our lives is renewed every single day. We cannot afford to ignore that invitation and give him any less than all of our hearts and all of our lives. We've been called to give of ourselves fully, to endure on the journey that God has called us to as a church. And it's not just for us as a church, Jubilee stood here. This is an invitation, this is an encouragement to endure patiently for individuals. For the kingdom of God is both here and not yet. Because how we live matters to Jesus. It matters to God. Yes, we can rejoice because the sting of death is now gone. Yes, the consequence of our sin is no more. The cost has been paid by the death of Jesus on the cross for us. And yes, our freedom is secure. But the choice to live in the fullness of our freedom is ours daily. And the choices that we make about how we live our lives, they matter to God. Our sin hurts his heart. It literally makes him grieve. And so, 
in this letter, with more encouragement, Jesus is calling us to endure patiently. Why might we do that? And it leads me to my third point. He's given us a new name. Join with me again in verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And for those of you who were counting and not snoozing, that's three names that were outlined there in this passage. Jesus is coming soon. That's, it. That's kind of an incredible declaration, isn't it? So hold on to what you have. Live in the fullness of Christ. It will be worthwhile. And it was encouragement for the Philadelphians to hear this as it's encouragement for us today. You see, at the time, the church in Philadelphia was under great persecution from the Jewish authorities of the day. When it said earlier in the passage, I know you have little strength, it wasn't just talking about a bad day. They weren't just tired. It literally meant they were weak. They had persevered through trial after trial. And it was in this moment of weakness when they realized they couldn't do it by themselves. Remember the door that Simon said we must remember to open to Jesus. We must remember to do it in his strength. And it's in this moment that Jesus encourages them that he's going before them and he's opening doors. Doors that no man can shut. But more than that, he's now placed on them the authority of his own name. And in Jewish law, you needed two or three witnesses for any legal transaction. And so here in the letter, Jesus is declaring over them that he has written onto them not just one name, not even two names, but three new names that establish his identity for the church. Names that carry the authority of the kingdom of heaven. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my new name. They were the three names. And these are the three names that Jesus writes on that church. And Phil Moore, uh, who's a commentator, he, he describes it like this. He says that these names are like signatures. Signatures that establish authenticity, ownership, and authority. You see, it was important at the time for Jesus to raise up his authentic church, the real church full of people who really loved him, because there were lots of counterfeits and false teachings all around. And so by signing his name on them, he was saying, this is mine. I offer the, my name as authenticity on this church. And you could say that the people around had tolerated the world and allowed the idolatry of the world to become their own. And we all know from Raj's talk two weeks ago 
just how bad that can be. And it's so important to Jesus that his church be genuine and true, set apart for him, so the names establish the authenticity of his church in Philadelphia. But signatures also establish ownership. To sign something says, this belongs to me. And Jesus is saying, this is my church. It belongs to me. Nothing or no one can take it away. And then thirdly, a signature establishes authority. When we sign our name to a document, we testify that this document is sent in our name. What an amazing piece of scripture we're we're looking at here. Not only has Jesus written his name over the Philadelphians at a time when they were weary and weak, but by doing so, he's establishing their authenticity. He establishes that their identity is in him and he gives authority to them. That's three things. Authenticity, identity, and authority. And it doesn't matter where you come from today or what you've done or what you're going through or perhaps even where you're going. When we are in Christ, there is only really one thing that matters that our identity is not found in our sin or our circumstances, but it's found in Christ, who is risen, victorious, majestic, and seated on the throne. He declares his love for us, his authority over us, and his power and his eternal grace for us. And all things in heaven and on earth must submit to his name. And that is the name that he has written over us. This is our great joy, guys. This is the pastoral message. This is our present hope for an eternal future. That Jesus, Son of God, Saviour of the world, laid down his life for little old me and little old you, and he took away our sin and clothed us in righteousness. He's given us a new name, a name that he writes on us. We now belong to his. We are his and he is ours. And so whatever is going on uh, right now in your life, whatever happens in this life, let me encourage you, it will come to an end. Okay? Whatever troubles we face will submit to the authority of the King of Heaven. What an encouragement to us that Jasim stands here after years of faithfulness with his family. Restored now today with his earthly family, but stood in the promise and the reality of his eternal family. His eternal inheritance in the kingdom of heaven alongside he who sits on the throne right now, victorious and righteous. We don't know when or where, but we do know that it is coming and he has said it is finished. Please be encouraged. The door of heaven is open to us and no one can close it. And God is at work even now in each of our lives opening and closing doors 
directing us in the way that he has called us to go. The question he asks is, will you endure? And will you do so patiently with a view not on today, but a view on tomorrow? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promises that we find in you. Father, I thank you that you really knew what it was to live on this earth and to endure suffering and challenge and pain and frustration. And Father, I thank you that you stand with the full authority of the new kingdom of heaven and you declare over us that you have opened up the door of heaven to us. You know what it is to endure and yet you encourage us to do it full of hope, full of faith, full of the promise and encouragement of the new name and new identity that we find in you. And so, Father, I want to pray over any circumstances, over any families, over any uh, individuals that are currently uh, struggling, anyone that's, that's facing a future of uncertainty, anyone that doesn't know where their finance is coming from, anyone that doesn't know how this circumstance will be played out, anyone that is clinging to the hope of healing, I want to pray, Father, over them that you have said it is finished and that in you we find all things, Lord Jesus, and that our eternity in you is a sure thing and yet we have an opportunity daily to choose how we live for you. So, Father, please come and equip us and empower us to make good choices with our life, to make choices that pursue you with our every breath, and that in the pursuit of you, release your full favour upon us, Lord Jesus. Please bless your church in your name. Amen.